Ann Huey is the Globe and Mail's national food reporter and uses food as a lens to explore public policy, health, the environment, science, and technology. Before she joined the Globe, her writing was published in The Walrus, The National Post, The Toronto Star, and The Victoria Times Colonist. I used to read that when I lived in Victoria. Uh, her new book is Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe, and Other Stories from Canada's Chinese Restaurants. And in that book, we find not only a personal story about you, which was revealed to you while you were writing the book, but we also find things like ginger beef, chicken balls, and spare ribs are not authentically Chinese dishes. They're called chop suey cuisine, a North American invention created by Asian immigrants all over our country. It's a fascinating read, and welcome. Nice to have you here. Thanks for having me. So you came across your love of food uh, legitimately. Your father was a cook in rural China before moving uh, to some big kitchens in Vancouver. Was food a big part of growing up just day-to-day in the house? Absolutely. I think uh, within the Chinese... Canadian community, I mean, I, I do think that we probably have a, a, a an added level of an obsession with food, because um, I don't think it was unique to my family. It seems like all of the Chinese families around us uh, growing up in Vancouver at the time were obsessed with, with food, you know. Every Saturday was trying to find the best place that would that made barbecue pork in, in Vancouver's right. Chinatown yeah. or the best roast pork or uh, the, the seafood shop where you could find the freshest uh, rock cod or, or whatever it was at the time. Um, food was just, you know, food was, was, was the way that we celebrated special occasions. Uh, family meals were, were kind of the, the way that we, we marked uh, uh, significant moments in our lives. Food was just a constant backdrop uh, and is something that I've just always had a really probably unhealthy uh, connection <laughs> with. <laughs> Well, you know, for me, learning about food when I was a kid, uh, I, I could not put on weight. So it didn't matter what I ate, right? That changed later, <laughs> obviously. But it didn't matter. So I, I ate everything. Mm-hmm. I tried it all. Mm-hmm. I loved it all. Mm-hmm. And and for me, food became, you know, as you were saying, uh, in, in terms of family life, became a way of celebrating things, became a way of, of, of uh, relating to one another almost. You related to one another through food. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to play into these stereotypes, but I very much had one of those kind of uh, the cliche of the Asian dad, the Chinese dad, is that, you know, tend to be a little bit more stoic, less likely to to to, to reveal their emotions. Uh, definitely my dad wasn't the type to to make small talk with me or, or, or to want to know what was happening in my, right. my day-to-day life or... or God forbid, hug me. That that was that that did not happen in our household. But every Sunday, my dad would cook for us these these big meals, these big family meals. Uh, and after my sisters kind of went to university and then they, they they moved out, the Sunday dinner was was very much you know the one time a week where a we would all be sitting around together around one table. But it was also I think his way of kind of showing us how he felt about us. Yeah. That's how people express themselves mm-hmm. often. Yeah. And in the book, you make a, a, a the, the differentiation between chop chu, suey, Chinese cuisine, and authentic Chinese cuisine. What's the difference? So chop suey Chinese is that whole kind of repertoire of dishes that I think anybody who is from North America uh, will immediately recognize. So dishes like sweet and sour chicken balls, mm-hmm ginger beef, uh, 
chop suey itself, uh, mugugai pan. These are dishes that I think most people would immediately, uh, these dishes would immediately register with most people as Chinese and they're sold as Chinese. And yet if you come from a, a Chinese background like myself, these are not, not dishes that we would have eaten at home. Yeah. Uh, in fact, these dishes were entirely foreign to me the first time <laughs> I came across them. As a kid, I, I didn't know, you know, what this, this this chicken that was coated in this bright red sauce was. I didn't know what chop suey was. Um, it, and so it's, it, it's, this, it's this food that is here in North America sold as Chinese, and yet it really uh, has no origin or connection uh, in, in a very direct sense with China. It has a connection to the immigrant experience yes. here. And for me, when I think of this, and as I was reading the book, and, and we'll talk about this, but you spent you know, some time traveling across the country talking to uh, people who ran these restaurants and, and experiencing the cuisine and, and collecting the stories of these people. Um, I grew up in a very small town in, in Nova Scotia. We had a Chinese restaurant named Wong's Restaurant. And in Wong's Restaurant, every Friday night, my father and I would go and I would get a number three, which was chicken balls and, <laughs> and an egg roll. And, and uh, you know, I for me... It, it, that felt like comfort food for me. But for many years, that was my idea of Chinese food. That's mm -hmm. just what I thought it was. And it wasn't until I started to travel and it wasn't until I came here and went to Chinatown or, you know, got out in the world a little bit and realized, oh, there's, you know, much better stuff out there. But for some reason, the idea of chicken ball still gives me great comfort. Yes. And I think that's very, very common. My husband grew up here in Toronto. He's not from a Chinese family. To, to him, uh, this is the Chinese food that he ate growing up. It, it is comfort food. It has that kind of nostalgia. And every once in a while, that's what he craves. And yeah. I think that's that's perfectly valid. Um, for me, as as someone who came from uh, a Chinese-Canadian family, as someone who grew up in Vancouver, surrounded by this, quote, authentic Chinese food and, and such a diversity of Chinese food, mm -hmm. this food has al had always been the subject of, of fascination to me. You know, I, I, I didn't understand for the longest time why when there was so much really delicious and, again, quote, authentic yeah. Chinese food, such a diversity of Chinese food. You could go for Sichuan, uh, Sichuanese food. You can go for Shanghaiese food. You could go for Yunnan-style noodles. The list goes on and on and on and on. I, I couldn't understand where this other kind of Chinese food had come from, uh, why it all seemed to be kind of the same, uh, who had invented it, and, and, and kind of who this food was for. And, and so I think that... Uh, that was what kind of re really triggered my fascination and my curiosity in the subject. You traveled across the country, and when you started, you started with kind of a, a disparaging notion of what this fake Chinese food would be like. Uh, what did you think you were in store for? Because you spent 18 days on the road, right? So what did you think you were in store for for the next 18 days? So you're right. I did have a, a slightly dismissive view of this food, <laughs> and... Part of it was just internalizing what I had heard from, you know, everybody around me. It, it, there was this idea, there is still this idea that this chop suey Chinese is is, is fake Chinese. Mm -hmm. You know, that the, the, the sweet and sour chicken balls, it's kind of loaded with that, that bright red sauce, that that is somehow lesser than the authentic stuff, especially in the last, I think, decade and a half, as people have become more aware and educated on different kind of regional cuisines. And, and you can get ingredients now that you 
previously couldn't buy readily. Absolutely. And in a city like Toronto, mm-hmm. where we are right now, there's so much amazing Chinese food that's coming from all corners uh, of that of that country and, and of that region. And so I think for some good reasons, we have become so f- obsessed with this notion of authenticity in our food. You know, there, there are people who almost make a sport out of wanting to hunt down the, yeah, yeah. the, the, the most authentic hole in the wall. Right. Uh, if it's only got three tables, it's got to be great. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and amidst that, I started to see, again, this really kind of like dismissive and, 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 and disparaging view of this other kind of Chinese. Um, but, and, and, and I very much, as I said, internalized those notions. But as I learned more about this cuisine, as I started talking to the people who were running these restaurants, and, and, and I learned the history of where this food came from, that really, really shifted my thinking. It is a food that comes from struggle. It's it is, a food that comes from, uh, uh, you know, hard times. It's a food that that tells a really interesting, I think, part of our country's history. So the, this food was created by the first Chinese men, and they were pretty much all men, mm-hmm. who arrived in North America, some of them in the States and some of them here in Canada. And many of these men had come originally in the mid-1800s uh, to take part in the gold rush or to work on the railroad. Um, And after that work was uh, no longer available, there were suddenly all of these these laws and policies put in place to keep those same Chinese men who had been actually recruited here to Canada as cheap labor, uh, to keep them out of the the workforce. There was this uh, notion that these men who had, you know, arrived in large numbers to Canada were going to take jobs away from locals. And so one of... Which in a way is still kind of a timely story today. Right. Yeah. Uh, so one of those one of those policies that were put in that was put in place was to put in was to have actual explicit rules that kept Chinese men out of the general workforce um, and and only leave open to them what was considered women's work at the time. So that left them laundromats, convenience stores, and restaurants. Now again, these were just normal men who had come here uh, from southern China. Most of them weren't cooks. Most of them didn't know how to cook. Most of them had never set foot in a professional kitchen before. And so they kind of had to figure things out. Um, Now, this is what they were up against. They, many of them didn't know how to cook. Um, Weird ingredients, probably, that they had never seen before. Certainly wouldn't have had the same ingredients that they would have had back in China, even if they wanted to cook, quote, authentic Chinese food. Uh, And most of their customers were not going to be Chinese. Most of their customers were were going to be locals. They were going to be white uh, families. And so they came up with this idea of kind of mixing together these ideas that were vaguely Asian, Chinese, with, again, the ingredients that they could find here in Canada, and with flavors that they thought might appeal to local palates. Uh, And so, you know, they started experimenting with things. They started adding, you know, ketchup to sauces. They started uh, adding some sugar, maybe, some vinegar. Maybe they might deep fry something. Um, They deep fried a lot of things, Mm -hmm. actually. And, And over time, they came up with this whole... Uh, set of dishes. I loved how you put it earlier. I mean, this really was food born out of struggle. You know, these men found themselves, these Chinese men found themselves 
in Canada suddenly uh, facing all of these different barriers and just trying to figure out a way to get by. And these restaurants and these dishes that they came up with, you know, ginger beef, chop suey, uh, sweet and sour chicken balls, this was their answer to those, mm-hmm. those challenges, this discrimination uh, and, and very real racism uh, that was that that was placed in front of them, and so I, I think there's something really beautiful about that, you know, that when faced with this 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 real ugliness, their their way of getting past that was was in creating something so delicious and something that people, uh, so many people and generations have have been able to really fall in love that's with lasted. ever since. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's lasted for a very long time, and I think, you know. What it, it says about that, every time you, you know, you have a chicken ball, what you are actually uh, experiencing is, uh, you know, perseverance, your, uh, uh, the entrepreneurship, you know, you're, you're seeing a culture put on a plate almost, but in a slightly unorthodox way. Mm-hmm. And it's, exa- it's exactly, uh, as you just put it, you know, those values of, of perseverance, of entrepreneurialism, of, 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 of really per- perseverance, those are very traditionally Chinese yeah. values, but they're also extremely Canadian values. And, and so I think in, in demonstrating those values that makes these dishes quintessentially Canadian and also uh, authentically Chinese. Um, and, and on this notion of authenticity, you know, I, I still struggle with, with using the word. I, I keep using quotation marks whenever I, I say authentic because... If you look at so many of the foods that that you and I probably have have come to love over time, so many of our best dishes are the result of people moving from one part of the world to the next. You know, all through history, we have stories of migration. We have stories of cultures coming up against one another, of people sharing ideas and traditions. And so... In, in that sense, chop suey is, is no different from, say, butter chicken or California rolls right. or spaghetti and meatballs. You know, it, it, this, this is food. Chop suey is food that tells the authentic story of men who came from southern China, from Canton in, in particular, moving to mostly North America, but really around the world. Uh, and, and, and the dishes themselves tell that story so beautifully. Uh, and in that sense, I, I just don't see how anyone can argue that it's not authentic. It, it, it's authentic to itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you spent 18 days crossing the country uh, from one end to the other. I mean, you started in Victoria, right? And yes. then you went all the way across the country to Fogo Island. And we'll talk about some of the specific stops along the way. Uh, but when you left, you really had no idea what was going to happen, mm-hmm. right? No, I was... Uh... I thought the story was, you know, I, I was personally fascinated in, in this this subject. I had a strong suspicion that I was going to find and meet some incredible stories and, and people, but you just never know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when you come up with an idea like this and, and you sell, you know, your employer on it <laughs> and you, you, take some money you convince <laughs> them to spend a little bit of money, uh, that's one thing. And then you find yourself in the car with 18 days in front of you and you really have no idea what to expect. It, it was a little bit stressful, um, but also a great adventure. 18 days doesn't seem like that long. No. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, I mean, you obviously had a plan, but things must have revealed themselves to you along the way. Mm-hmm. I did uh, 
I did a fair bit of planning in that, you know, I wanted to make sure we would have somewhere to sleep every night. Right. So I booked, <laughs> I booked the hotels and kind of mapped out the general path. Yeah. But I didn't want to be too, too rigid in terms of scheduling every single stop in between mm-hmm. because I didn't know what I was going to find. Um, there were a few stops and a few restaurants that I identified right off the top that I knew I, I, I had to go to and, and maybe would make uh, appointments in advance. So I'm thinking of Stony Plain, Alberta, where uh, the Chinese restaurant owner, William Choi, who owns Bing's number one Chinese, is also the town's mayor. Right. And so I figured I should probably make an appointment with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Might be a busy guy. <laughs> um, but for the most part, uh, a lot of the other stops were were just kind of stumble upon along the way. And would people at one place say, oh, you have to try the ginger beef at this next place in the town, one town away? Yeah, that happened a lot. Sometimes I would come to restaurants that I had earlier identified only to find them closed that day. Right. Uh, sometimes the restaurants had shut down altogether. Um, sometimes the restaurant owners didn't want to talk to me. And so there was a lot of Googling along the way. Um, but the beauty of doing a trip like this is that pretty much every single small town in this country has a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. So every time I, I would come up against one of one of those issues, I could just Google the next town uh, over and, and find the restaurant there. As your job as the, the food reporter for the Globe and Mail, you don't do restaurant reviews. You don't do what one would normally assume. I guess calling you a food reporter is different than a food columnist. So you're not doing restaurant reviews. You are looking at food as sort of part of a larger cultural mosaic, right, and how it relates to technology and the, our day-to-day lives. Yeah. I uh, the, the way I describe it to people at dinner parties is, is I am – basically a buzzkill. <laughs> I, I, I write a lot about what's wrong with our food system. Right. Um, w- when I first pitched this beat to, to my managers, I, I, I basically told them that I'm looking to explain a few questions or to answer a few questions. Where does our food come from? And why do we eat the way that we do? Um, and so I, I try to use those questions to, to guide me um, in, in terms of what kinds of stories to look at. But but you're right, I'm, I'm interested uh, in, in food policy very much. So I'm interested in kind of who is, is telling us what to eat and, and how uh, all of those those things happen. Um, I'm interested in, in kind of the food industry and how government comes together. Um, well, you investigated or you did an investigation into the role of lobbying in the development of Canada's food guide. What did you learn there? Oh, that was uh, so. That was a years-long effort, I, and I wrote a series of uh, of stories out of that. Um, shortly after I took on this role with the Globe, uh, shortly after or shortly before, around the same time, was when the Liberal government announced that they were going to be making this change to Canada's food guide, which hadn't been updated for quite some time, and. You know, I, I grew up with Canada's Food Guide. I yeah. think most of us did. We learned it in schools. We've seen it in doctor's offices. It, it's such an influential document. It's actually, I think, the second most requested document from, from the federal wow. government. Um, and, and so I think that it, it was important for all of us to understand how those changes were going to be made. You know, this is a document that tells people, um, reaches into kind of the most intimate part of many of our, our lives, which is telling people what to eat and what to put into their bodies um, so I spent 
a, a number of years really collecting documents, uh, trying to figure out, you know, who had been meeting with government, who had been meeting with government the last time around mm-hmm. before uh, changes were made then, um, trying to figure out who has been trying to influence the government in, in creating this document, trying to figure out which government departments had been talking to each other and lobbying one another. And it, it, it's been really a, a fascinating. Well, it's an interesting journey. idea that the science of how our bodies work hasn't changed. And so why then would the recommendations that kept us healthy and alive in the 1970s and 80s change now in the 2000s? I think it's maybe the... I think it's the the science that we understand has changed in that I think that as scientists uh, develop new tools and 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 further develop their research, th- their understanding of how the body works and and the optimal foods and diets that 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 help us be our healthiest selves has in fact changed and evolved over time. And so the the point of this new document is really to reflect that that new science or that new understanding. My big takeaway from the new one is uh, drink more water. It's a good one. Yeah. That's a very good one. It's a very good one. It's a very good one. Hydration is more important, especially as you get older. Hydration is more important than you think it is. Uh, Back to Chop Suey Nation. Uh, A fascinating book. You're on the road 18 days traversing the country, talking to uh, the owners and people that run uh, Chinese restaurants along the way. Probably along the way, you meet some that are generational, passed down from one person to another, family member to another. Uh, oftentimes, though, I don't know that that's the case. I think that new families come over and take over uh, often. And so did you find that in some cases the sense of connective history was lost because the restaurants had been bought and sold several times over? I definitely found, as you laid out, instances of, of kind of both mm-hmm. uh both systems. So there were many examples of restaurants where the current owner is the third, fourth, sometimes even fifth generation uh, of a family to run that restaurant. And then you're right, I also found examples where the restaurant owners had only been in the country for maybe two or three years and had taken over from the previous uh, owners. Maybe they had bought the business and and and, uh, and decided to, to use the restaurant as their vehicle for starting a new life here. Um, but even in that latter case, I wouldn't say that that history has been uh, kind of lost or or that there's been a disruption because in many of the cases with the brand new families and the and the newcomers, they're still running the business in exactly the same way as the right. previous owners. Uh, many of the restaurant owners who who buy these businesses, you know, when they buy or if they take over the lease of a restaurant in a small town somewhere, say in the prairies, they're not just taking over the lease. They're also buying all of the furniture inside of the restaurant. They're buying all of the existing kitchen equipment. They're buying a binder full of recipes so that they can cook every single dish that the people in the town have come to know and love for many decades in exactly the same way. Uh, They're often not changing the name of the restaurant. They're not changing the menus. They're usually paying for the first month of uh, of operation to to have the previous owner stay on and teach them exactly how to run the restaurant in exactly the same way that it's been running for the last 50 years. Um, So so there is still that connection Mm -hmm. to the past. So let's talk about some specifics. Uh, let's talk about uh, the idea of a woman running a restaurant alone, 
365 days a year in Fogo Island in uh, Newfoundland. And, you know, apparently, what's the story that she took one day off and everyone freaked out? They were like, what's wrong? Something's wrong. She closed the restaurant one day and... uh, and, and, yeah, people raised alarm bells. <laughs> it turned out she was sick, and, and from knowing her now, she must have been very sick in order to shut down the restaurant. But um, this is a woman. Her name is Huang Feng Zhu, uh, and she runs a restaurant called the Kuang Tung in Fogo Island. And even before I had set out on this trip, I had seen this photograph of her somewhere in, in the deep, deep Internet. And, you know, she's a middle-aged woman standing in front of this white clapboard building Above the door, there's a sign with the Pepsi logo on it. Yeah, and next yeah. to it, it says Kuang Tung Restaurant. And the caption just said something along the lines of Huang Feng Zhu runs Kuang Tung Restaurant 365 days a year and lives alone in the restaurant. And, and that photo and that story just captured my imagination from the start. I wanted to know how a woman from China mm-hmm. somehow winds up in a place like Fogo Island, which is remote. Is about yeah. as remote as it gets <laughs> yeah, for this yeah. country, uh, alone. And so she was the last person I visited on the road trip. And, uh, you know, when I, I met her and I heard her story, it was it was really remarkable because when you look at the facts of her life, you know, you hear it's this woman who lives alone in this very isolated place. Uh, her children have grown and moved away. Her husband lives in another town. They see each other once, maybe every few months. She doesn't speak a lot of English. She doesn't even have a cell phone. It all sounds impossibly lonely. Mm-hmm. And yet I, I I talk to her. I meet her. I learn her story. I don't want to give away too much yeah, about yeah. it. But she, she tells me how living this way and having two restaurants, her husband runs another restaurant in another town, how this has allowed her the family to offer to her three grown children unimaginable opportunities. Right. They've, they were able to put all three of them through university. Uh, at least two of them have graduate degrees. Uh, they're living in Toronto. They're living in, in Halifax and St. John's. And she's telling me these stories and she's showing me their graduation photos and she's just, her, her her entire face changes. She lights up. She's filled with pride. She's laughing. She's happy. She's smiling. And far from it being this really kind of sad and lonely story, it's in fact the, the exact opposite. And I think the story that she shared, this idea of sacrifice for the next generation and this kind of blind faith in the idea of a better future is one that just exemplifies the stories of so many of the families that I met along the way and, and, and on this road trip. What is Newfoundland Chow Mein? Newfoundland Chow Mein is a really great example of the the idea of this being kind of an improvised cuisine, a, a food that was just kind of made up over time. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, a lot of this food came from a lack of quote, authentic ingredients. It it was Chinese cooks here in Canada trying to figure out how to make food based on the ingredients that they could find here in Canada. Mm -hmm. And with chow mein, which literally, it it comes from Cantonese chow mein, which literally means fried noodles. Uh, In Newfoundland in particular, they had a challenge because as as you probably know, Newfoundland even today sometimes uh, is 
is a challenging place to get certain ingredients because it's an island. Uh, and so until relatively recently, they weren't even able to get egg noodles, which is pretty important part yeah, of, of a noodle dish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what the Newfoundland Chinese cooks uh, came up with over time was to create kind of noodles uh, out of cabbage. They would thinly slice the cabbage into very thin strips so that it looked kind of like noodles mm-hmm. and then stir fry it along with all the other ingredients and they called it chow mein. And so t- even today, if you go to Newfoundland and you order chow mein, that's what you get. And in Quebec, you can get uh, fried macaroni. Fried macaroni, which is actually pretty delicious. Well, it sounds, so there's nothing that doesn't sound <laughs> great about that. No, it, fried macaroni is like almost any other kind of stir-fried noodle dish you would find on a Chinese menu. Uh, only they use elbow macaroni yeah. instead of egg noodles or whatever else. I'm all for it. Uh, so ginger beef is very popular. And this is something that kind of blows my mind for some reason. Ginger beef is very popular in the prairies, but it was invented in Alberta. It was invented in Calgary in the 1970s. In the 1970s? In the 1970s, yeah. So it's a relatively recent uh, addition to the the repertoire. Uh, This was created at the Silver Inn by a cook named George Wong. And George was experimenting with the menu one day. They they really wanted to up their bar sales, which, you know, any (laughs) restaurateur knows is kind of the key to success. And so they wanted to come up with kind of snacky type dishes, dishes that would go well with drinks. And so he remembered a dish that, uh, he had learned to cook, uh, I think it was a northern Chinese dish that was kind of a, almost like a beef jerky-like texture right. um, with sweet chilies and uh, in, 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 in a bunch of other ingredients and, and, and tossed in a sauce. And so he recreated that at the Silver Inn. Customers did not enjoy it. They didn't <laughs> like, they didn't like that kind of chewy, chewy, right. uh, yeah. chewy, uh, jerky-like texture. And so, you know, George started thinking about this and and he realized, you know, being in Calgary with access to Alberta beef, maybe he could try using the the local beef and and, and do things that, that, that would really draw out that kind of tender texture. And so what he came up with was to slice thin strips of of the Alberta beef, the tender Alberta beef, um, coated very quickly in batter, and then just flash fry it so that the outside of the beef would be kind of crispy and and almost French fry-like was was the way they described it, but still tender on the inside. Um, This dish was a little bit more successful, quite a lot more successful, and it just took off. You know, and the funny thing, well, to me, the funniest thing about ginger beef is that even though it's now known almost all across the, the West Coast or, or Western Canada is ginger beef. There's actually very little ginger in it. Right. Uh, right. What happened was that it was originally put on the dish at the Silver Inn with this very long, I think, chili beef strips or something name. Yeah. But because it was the 1970s and it was in Alberta and people didn't quite have the, the palates, uh, the sophisticated palates that they have today, they didn't recognize uh, the, the chili flavor. Uh, and, st- and instead, they thought, mmm, spicy, probably ginger. They started asking for uh, that beef with the ginger stuff, and that stuck. And so now, even though the dish has very little ginger in it, it's still referred to as, as ginger beef. And referred to everywhere. I mean, it's it's a dish, particularly in the West, that you can get, but we can order it here. It just, it kind of blows my mind that mm-hmm. it was uh, created in Calgary. Now, how did this book... 
uh, help you learn about your own family. Your own family history is sort of woven through this book. Uh, what happened there? And, and, and it was a revelation to you, right? It, it was. Uh, so when I first did this road trip, and even in the immediate aftermath, I thought that it was a fascinating story, and I recognized, you know, I am Chinese-Canadian, and so there was that connection, and there was the fact that my dad had worked in restaurants, uh, although in my experience it had always been kind of Western restaurants. Right. Um, so I, I, I thought that there were loose connections there, but it was only several months after I wrote this story based on the road trip and that it was published in the Globe and Mail that I was back in Vancouver visiting my parents. My dad was sick at the time, um, and so I was spending a lot of time in Vancouver uh, visiting him and trying to spend time with him, asking him questions about his life. Um, he, he had been diagnosed with um, cholangiocarcinoma, which is um, cancer that doesn't go away. And so we had a, suddenly this very real timeline where I, I really wanted to get to know him mm -hmm. in a way that I didn't already. Um, and so I'm asking him all these questions, and I'm, and I'm really pressing him on details. He's getting very annoyed with me. <laughs> and uh, it comes out that one of the restaurants that he and my mom had actually owned before I was born uh, in what was then a small town, not so much anymore, Abbotsford, B.C., was actually a chop suey restaurant. And I was just blown away by this. Uh, I couldn't. I still can't quite believe that I didn't know this yeah, about them. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't believe that I had done this entire road trip and, and done this kind of biggish project uh, on Chinese restaurants and, and going and asking literally dozens of families across the country for their stories and, and, and for them to share you know, yeah. what brought them here and tell me about your restaurants. And I hadn't even done the same with my own family. Yeah, where you could have just gone and visited the folks and gotten the stories, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so that really sparked in me this this very real kind of uh, urgency and and urgency to learn that story and to finally do this work. Um, and that paired with this, again, this very real kind of deadline that we had uh, in which to learn it. And so the second piece of my journey, I guess, and, and what forms that second uh, spine of the book is is my finally going and, and learning my family's story, figuring out how my dad's side of the family had gone from many, 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 many generations, every generation that anybody could remember, in fact, of farming in this very, very poor part of rural southern China to somehow within the span of one and a half, two maybe generations, me living this life in Toronto that seems to be a complete world away. Right. And and what what was the like? What did you learn? Did you learn something about your family? Did it bring you closer that you had done all this research across the country and talked to so many other people, and then this story presents itself? Did it did it change anything for you? Changed a lot of things for yeah. me. Uh, I mean, I think the act of learning one's own story and and family story is so important. Um, so for me, just personally, it, it 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 was fulfilling that. I mean, it brought me obviously a lot closer to my dad and in, in, in finally understanding the struggles. Um, but I I learned. I, I guess the the big thing is I, I learned that my family, like most families, had a bit of a secret. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> There, there had been a lot of questions around my family being separated, uh, basically, from the time my dad was one, until 
the time he was in his mid-20s, he was basically left behind in China. Mm-hmm. His dad had come to Canada without, uh, without him, and then his mom followed soon after. And so he was left in China. Um, I didn't understand why. Many others in my family didn't quite understand why. My dad never really seemed to want to talk about it, and it was obviously uh, a subject that, that, that was quite tense, mm-hmm. that had led to decades of tension between my, my dad and my grandfather. I was never really able to know my grandfather, I think partly because of this tension. And as I gradually kind of pulled on those strings and, and slowly started to unravel this story, what I learned was, yes, my own family's story and, 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 and a, a, an answer to that secret. But I also learned that that's, that secret and that story, in fact, tells a much larger Canadian story. And it's a story that's common to a lot of Chinese families. I think it's a, a part of our history here in Canada that we don't talk about a lot, mm-hmm. that a lot of people may still be unaware of, but is such an instructive piece of our history. And I learned that, you know, growing up in Canada as, 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 as a as an child of relatively recent immigrants, we feel sometimes like our stories and our histories are maybe not are kind of peripheral to the, the main Canadian history. Right. You know, when we read Canada history books, uh, if there is a section on kind of Chinese Canadian history, it's usually like a sidebar, Article 1.3. <laughs> um, and I think that's what we've come to expect. But from learning my story and from learning my family's story, I started to realize that it's actually our stories and stories like it that tell the main story. I mean, our stories are what makes up this country, and there are so many others like us. Uh, and there is, in fact, no one story. So that, I think, was was my biggest way of kind of, yeah. uh, my biggest shift in thinking and, and finally understanding kind of our place in this larger country. Um, and your, it, your piece of the mosaic our piece, tile. Yeah, yeah to, to use yeah. a maybe slightly cheesy analogy. Um, and, and that is, that that's represented a tremendous shift in, in just my thinking in terms of identity and belonging. Um, and I, and I hope it, it, it does the same for others who read the book, too. The book is called Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe and Other Stories from Canada's Chinese Restaurants. I've been chatting with the book's author, and Huey. And thanks so much. Thanks so much, Richard. What a pleasure to speak to you.
My thanks to you for listening, and my thanks to Mike Catherwood on the board. We'll talk to you again next week.